Hi, my name is Chelsea Fairless. And I'm Lauren Garoni. And today we're talking about a very obscure art house film called Titanic. <laughs> yeah, the 25th anniversary is technically next month, but we want to do a Christmas film. So we're doing it for the month of November. Yeah, and also we want to get ahead of all of the Titanic 25th anniversary press because you guys are going to be fucking sick of it by the end of December. So I know here in Los Angeles, they're going to be doing a Titanic experience. Should we go? Well, what's the experience like? And where is it? Is it like in the Britney, the zone? I actually think it might be in there. I mean, let's be honest. It, they're recreating. Oh my God. I almost called it the set. <laughs> it's not a set. It's a real boat. Uh, which is an interesting thing when they re-released the film in 2012, where young people watched the re-release of Titanic and didn't know it was a real event. Right. But anyway, it's just, I think, an opportunity. Well, you know, we don't spend enough money on education <laughs> in this country. So what do you expect? People barely know that there are three branches of government. How are they expected to know? <laughs> About some boat that crashed in 1912. I did think if Titanic came out today, would there be conspiracy theorists that are like the Titanic never happened? Oh, absolutely. I'm sure that exists. Yeah. Ocean waves can't drown boats. When did this movie come out? 97? 1997. So were you obsessed with it at the time? Like, were you a big Titanic head? Were you a big Leo head? I definitely was like every middle-aged to elder millennial in love with Leonardo DiCaprio. Not so much now, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel the exact same way. I remember... Remember the Scholastic catalogs and you could write in and order stuff? I remember one of the things was an autograph from Leonardo DiCaprio and like a bunch of girls <laughs> and I all went in on getting autographs from Leonardo DiCaprio, which now I realize like I'm sure he had Lucas Haas signing those... <laughs> press photos definitely i had a poster of leo on my wall like leo from romeo and juliet this was a really major time to be a leonardo dicaprio fan because romeo and juliet had come out the year before and that movie was everything to me and my friends i don't know about you but and then to follow that up with titanic was just major well, you've also said about Leonardo DiCaprio, especially at that time. And as I look at you, you look very Leonardo DiCaprio with like the hair. And I don't look like Leo. Uh, you have the similar hair, but you've told me that he was sort of a gateway crush on the road to lesbianism. For sure. And I think a lot of lesbians feel that way or maybe just people that are attracted to androgyny in general as I am. But Leonardo DiCaprio at that point was very effeminate and very just extremely hot even today watching that film i'm so struck by his beauty yeah he wasn't just a hot person he was beautiful and you can't exactly put your fingers on what feature right like chris pine you're like oh he's got beautiful blue eyes but it's just it's everything all <laughs> does <together>. he <laughs> yeah he does <laughs> It was kind of confusing as someone that was closeted at the time because, yeah, I was definitely more into him than Kate Winslet. And I don't say that to shade Kate Winslet, who's incredibly gorgeous in this film. But I don't know. It just it struck something in me. And to this day, even watching this with Tat, she was like, I can't watch this movie. Like, it makes me so straight. Like, it's fucked up. <laughs> 
it's funny I put myself back in that place because I remember going to Universal City Walk to see the film because the film took years to film. It went $100 million over budget and it already had a $100 million budget. James Cameron gave up his salary and his back end points to kind of calm down the studio. And so I even remember at that age, the the word of the film was like, it's going to come out and it's going to be a disaster because Waterworld had come out a few years before. Right, I remember that. Yeah. And was an expensive disaster. And then I don't remember when it turned. I Probably when the trailer came out. But yeah, I remember seeing it opening weekend. Yeah, same. Did you see it more than once in the theaters? I must have, but maybe twice. I saw it three times, I remember. But also you have to remember... At that point, the movie wasn't going to come out on VHS for a year, potentially. And I had that VHS, which was the that double, double VHS. VHS. <laughs> I know, of course. Were you also someone that after watching Romeo and Juliet and then Titanic went back and watched his earlier movies like What's Eating Gilbert Grape or The Basketball Diaries? And remember that one? I actually never saw it, but that one total eclipse that was like a gay period romance where you could see like half of his ass in it or half of his dick or something. So a lot of people were going back to that. That I never saw, but I think in a Leonardo DiCaprio haze of obsession that we all had, his movies just were on cable a lot. I remember the film that he did afterwards was The Beach, and I think I went to go see that in theaters, and I was 12, and I was like, I don't understand this at all. No, The Beach was a big letdown. When I went to go rent this film, I learned that I already own it, and I think that I bought it a few years ago when we decided to show Tatiana Titanic for the very first time i don't know if that was a few years ago i feel like that was a year ago two years ago maybe two years ago it's very fun to watch titanic for the first time with someone born in 1995 <laughs> <laughs> to she loved it of she, course she didn't want to see it because she doesn't like period films and i'm like this is not a period film first of all it's so historically inaccurate which we'll get into in a bit <laughs> but it's really not about that you can get past the old timey stuff did you know that the studio initially wanted matthew mcconaughey to play jack dawson sure nothing beats leo because there's no other twink that iconic but i'm sure matthew mcconaughey would be great he definitely can do the working class thing it's also perfect because when James Cameron went to go pitch this, he pitched it as Romeo and Juliet on the Titanic. Right. This was one of those films where every actor, every Gen X actor, every Gen X, and even like elder millennial actress went up for the role of Rose. So it's like, I think Claire Danes had auditioned and then was like, this is too weird to do like back-to-back films with Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. There's a great audition tape that's up on YouTube of Jeremy Sisto auditioning with Kate Winslet, and he is awful. And I say that as someone that loves him as an actor. <laughs> but also Kate Winslet, before this movie, her breakthrough was Heavenly Creatures, but that was like art house prestige. That wasn't like massive worldwide fame. And then I think she was in Pride and Prejudice. I think that came out before Titanic. Right around that time. Yeah, 95, 96. Yeah, so she was on a fast track to be an Oscar winner at that point. But this was the movie that made her a household name. 
This is also the last bit of Garoni IMDb casting trivia, but I that re- I seriously doubt. But no, the, okay. the casting portion, yes. But evidently, it was Paul Rudd who convinced Leonardo DiCaprio to do the film on the set of Romeo and Juliet because Paul Rudd's father is an avid historian of the Titanic, and he was like, "Oh man, like no, this film's gonna be great. You should totally do it." The Titanic's awesome, man. He's not wrong. It's hard to unwind if I knew about the Titanic before the film. I'm going to assume no. I knew about it before the film, for sure. I went to a very great K through 8th school. (laughs) To be fair, I was nine when this movie came out. Yeah, that is something that I feel like you learn about when you're like 11. And now the pendulum has swung all the way back where now people don't even know that it was a real event. Let's get into it. Shall we get into it? Yeah. So despite the $200 million budget, it appears that only $200 was allocated to the opening credits, the title sequence. There was no money left, Chelsea. I This morning before we recorded, I was watching on YouTube a behind-the-scenes making of the film, and it is astonishing that the CGI looks so good 25 years on. When you're watching the special effects, people do the work on 1997-era computers. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> How is this not crashing every 30 seconds? <laughs> totally. But this does look like it was edited on iMovie, which always wants you to make like a sepia Ken Burns type thing. But then it it transitions from the title sequence to deep sea footage of the Titanic, which is real, right? It's real, and it's kind of the only reason James Cameron wanted to make this film. Like, he wanted to deep-sea dive and wanted it to be on a studio's dime. So he basically attached this film, which is Romeo and Juliet on the Titanic, as a way to get a studio to pay for this. So in the world of this film, Bill Paxton is an oceanographer, or is he more like a pirate? I can't figure it out. Every time I watch this film, I forget about the first 30 minutes that it is... A film where the premise, which is basically a MacGuffin, is Bill Paxton is some gold digger searching for this diamond for his employer so they can cut it up. Right. They're looking for the heart of the ocean, which is not a real diamond, not a real necklace that exists, but obviously based on the Hope Diamond, which is also a massive blue diamond worth hundreds of millions of dollars. It's kind of like in Boogie Nights how Dirk Diggler and John Holmes exist in the same porn world in that film. Because <laughs> they do reference the Hope Diamond in this movie. So it's this Titanic world, the Hope Diamond and the Heart of the Ocean both exist. <laughs> they think that the Heart of the Ocean is in this safe that's on board the Titanic. They find the safe. They like bring it up, bust it open. Movie over. They found it. (laughs) (laughs) Credits. No, it's not in there, but they do find an artwork, a beautiful sensual drawing of Miss Kate Winslet, topless. Don't her tits look great? Her tits look incredible. I mean, she's also showing Bush, which still (laughs) remains pretty scandalous. I love how people are always like, don't take nudes. They might come back to haunt you. But, like, imagine if you're a hundred years old, as this character is, and, like, this super hot, sensual drawing of you from when you were 20 just emerges. Like, what a gift. I would love that. I also love that Titanic, while realistic in in many ways historically, has adopted what most historical films do, which is, like, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're in period clothing, but like they still shave their armpits and legs, <laughs> which wouldn't be the case. Yeah, apparently they also wore a lot more makeup than wealthy women would have at the time. But so footage of this drawing is released on the news and Bill Pax is acting like the the cops during the Zodiac killing. He's like, maybe if I show the news this photo, we'll get some leads on this goddamn diamond. <laughs> Even though I know that pretty much anyone that was of age on the Titanic is dead by now. Yes, but enter Rose, the 100-year-old ceramicist, who just rings him up and is like, the woman in the drawing is me. Much to her granddaughter's chagrin, she's like, I guess? <laughs> also, the character of Rose is not real, but she was based on this woman named Beatrice Wood, who was a famous ceramicist who was not on the Titanic, but who lived in the same period as uh, as these characters did. And I guess James Cameron was reading her biography while he was writing this, but you can still buy her vases on first dibs for like $3,000, FYI. Very nice. Was she also an actress? Because evidently, after the events of Titanic, Rose became an actress. Because that's what one of the guys who works with Bill Paxton is trying to be like, she's an actress. Of course she's lying. This right, She can't right. know it. Also, wouldn't it be easy? <laughs> okay, yes, she's 100 years old now. But surely she has a photo from the 1920s that she would still look like Kate Winslet to be like, see, this is me. Yeah, surely. So Rose is airlifted onto the boat with her Pomeranian, which is a very specific Titanic reference because apparently only three dogs survived the Titanic and one of them was a Pomeranian. Now you're just making me think about all the dogs that evidently perished on the Titanic. I know, we don't talk about them enough. Then this psychotic nerd that doesn't understand social cues, just starts showing Rose like graphic footage, 3D renderings of the boat sinking. Okay, so th this is where the exposition you need to tell a story in a movie kind of uh, hits head on with like the reality that would happen in this situation, which is they needed to explain what happened to the Titanic in that scene so that the audience understood what was happening on the boat. So you didn't have people while the Titanic is sinking happening to shout like, and now the bow, the bow is about to break in half and we're all going to be sucked down. Right. But yeah, very triggering for Rose. <laughs> Although apparently this isn't how the boat actually sank. Like it just slid into the water. It yeah. did not stand erect and then break in half like midair. I think that's Cameron just dealing with some, I don't know, penis envy or something. And this is where also where we get the it's been 84 years. Which has now just come to mean like, Jesus Christ, it's been so long <laughs> since I had a pumpkin spice latte. True. So then, you know, we go we go back to the CGI Titanic. It's 1912. Well, it's partially CGI. I mean, they did, they yeah. built a nine tenths to size replica of the Titanic in Mexico. Why not just bump it up that extra 10%? <laughs> like, why stop there? I'm not exactly sure, but that's what they did. And uh, Young Rose is revealed looking very glamorous. I love this outfit. I want this outfit. Yeah. 
Why don't we wear big hats anymore? Uh, but you know what? Big hats scare me. And full disclosure, actually, this period in fashion, not one that I care about. I, I actually don't want to look like this. I'm, menswear, sure. Menswear had already evolved to a point of perfection by 1912. But I don't know. The women's stuff, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. It's too ornate. Speaking of which, we are introduced to Billy Zane's Cal Hockley, who I imagine actually paid for the tickets for the Titanic for Rose and her mother, Ruth. Yeah, her bitch of a mother, Ruth. (laughs) The buzzkill of this entire film. And then we meet Jack, who wins his ticket to the Titanic playing poker or something. Some card game. It's a card game. I do always love in films when they do the fake out of like, I'm sorry, I lost everything. And his Italian friend is like, motherfucker. And he's like, well, you're not going <laughs> to. His Italian friend has a name. It's Fabrizio. <laughs> and I was like, this could not possibly be an Italian actor. Like this has to be an American. And I was half right. Well, he's Italian American. Well, yeah, he spent the first eight years of his life in Italy. But I still do think that this portrayal of an Italian person is insane. Yeah. I mean, this might be worthy of a Patreon episode is just like insulting what I'll call pasta face in movies. <laughs> I'll anoint uh, Colin Farrell in the, as the penguin, as the most like Italian Oswald cobblepot in Batman history. <laughs> but I do love a fake out where he's like, where Fabrizio thinks that he's lost all of their uh, earthly possessions, but really he's just not going to be able to say hi to his mom tonight because they're going on the Titanic. <laughs> and guess what? It's leaving right now. <laughs> So they have to like run on board. Meanwhile, Rose and Cal are settling into their very ornate rooms. Apparently their room was a very accurate recreation of the like first first class cabins on this ship, which are just super gilded, ornate, crazy. It does look fabulous. It does. And it's established that Rose is a collector of impressionist and cubist art. But it's like literally like the most famous Picasso that exists that did not sink on the Titanic that is very much hanging on the wall at the MoMA in New York, which kind of surprised me because I was like, wow, like they spent $200 million on this film, but there wasn't an art advisor that was hired. I think they didn't want to have period accurate pieces of art because they wanted the most famous pieces so people in the audience would be like, oh yeah, I know that. It wasn't that it wasn't period accurate. It was just too famous it's like it was like they might as well have had the Mona Lisa be one of those artworks oh you you didn't see that Fabrizio was carrying that over his shoulder (laughs) I don't know it just it takes it takes you out of it a bit no 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 in the same way the Hope Diamond thing does right no 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 it takes you out of the film Chelsea (laughs) I'm sure it takes other people out of the film anyway that is to say that Cal does not appreciate Rose because he's like ugh You have terrible taste in art, but at least it was cheap. Get it? Because they're very famous and expensive paintings now. That Picasso. (laughs) He's never going to be worth anything. It's like, okay, come on. This is way too on the nose. Look, James Cameron was splitting duties. He's like, I got to I got to make a completely accurate rendering of the first class dining hall. I can't, I don't know, a Picasso or something. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jack and Fabrizio are hanging out on the nose of the ship where we get the famous I'm the king of the world line, which I believe was used in the trailer. Of course, and it was also used by James Cameron when he won Best Director at the Oscars. Oh, see, that I blocked out. Although that was a very important Oscars year. 
97 or 98, 98. for 97 yeah. yeah yeah it really was because that's when fashion wise we got sharon stone in the white shirt don't we get and we got Nicole- madonna in the olivia T- olivier Tayskins outfit that was just a big Oscars because it was as good as it gets, Goodwill Hunting, LA Confidential, Titanic. Remember when Oscar nominated films were films actually everyone saw? I know. So we meet Victor Garber and Kathy Bates at some sort of lunch scene. Don't you feel like Victor Garber was born to play this role? Like, can you imagine anyone else as the ship's architect? Well, again, it's hard to unwind that because it's like the first time I ever saw Victor Garber. So it's hard to think of him as anyone else. But did the First Wives Club come out before this? I think so. I saw him in that. Oh, there you go. But I I feel like he's really perfect in this. And Kathy Bates is obviously really perfect in everything. And this is one of the more delightful characters in this film. As the unsinkable Molly Brown, who is rich, but everyone dislikes her because she's new money. But she's actually just like fun as fuck. Anyone that like rolls in carrying their own Vuitton trunks (laughs) and is like, I wasn't going to wait for you guys. (laughs) There's some conversation where I think Kathy Bates is like, why is it called the Titanic? And the guy that's a good Kathy Bates in Titanic impression. (laughs) And the guy that owns the ship is like, you know, we wanted to convey the scale. And then Rose is like, have you read Freud? Because he ha- he's written a lot about like men's preoccupation with scale. And it's like, okay, why are you being a bitch to this random guy? Like, I understand that you don't want to marry Cal and that your mom's a bitch and you feel trapped in this existence. But like, this man didn't do anything to you. Yeah, also don't like Sarah Lawrence liberal arts him right now. Of course he hasn't read Freud. Yeah, and also, I guess... Freud that shit wasn't published for like another 10 years so it's another thing that's historically inaccurate about Titanic but whatever but this is where we get where Victor Garber is walking with Kate Winslet and he's like telling her about the specs of the ship and she sort of figures out like wait there's not enough lifeboats and he's like yeah whatever she's doing some major mental math there I wonder if that will become important later in the film. And that is true. There were only enough lifeboats for half of the passengers and they were not filled. So most of the people on the ship died, even though they didn't really have to. Right. Because they found it was more aesthetically pleasing if they only had half the the lifeboats they needed. Actually, as I was watching Titanic documentaries, what happened was that there was a race between cruise liners to get bigger and bigger, but the safety board didn't increase the amount of lifeboats to scale up for the size of the the boat. So I think actually they did have legally the correct amount of lifeboats that they were supposed to have, but not actually to save everyone. We're now in one of many dinner sequences where Rose, again, is having some sort of internal panic attack. Did you realize that this dining room is actually CGI? No, I didn't. So it was too expensive to recreate. So they made a miniature version and shot them against a green screen. Hmm, that's cool. Could have fooled me. See? You did made, fool me. You made you made fun of the CGI. See, they were so focused on that, they couldn't focus on the title <laughs> sequence. There's a lot of Rose voiceover, but like old woman Rose. And then right. we get like a little bit. This is the portion where we get Kate Winslet Rose voiceover that kind of ends after this scene. Just to establish like, this bitch is unhappy. 
Yeah, she's like, I feel like I'm on a slave ship. It's like, well, Ooh. not really the same thing, girl, but okay, I, I understand that you don't want to marry this guy. And that being a woman at that point in history, even a rich woman, you're a third class citizen, essentially. Yeah, there's a amount of sexual ser- servitude. For sure. And a lack of financial autonomy. I mean, it's not like you can like have a bank account and stuff, can you? No, women couldn't even have their own credit cards until the 70s. <laughs> the, the 1970s, Joe. So fucked up. So she just decides to kill herself. Nothing really prompts this. She's just had enough. Look, the plot needs to happen. So yeah, it kind of hard cuts to her just over over the ship. And then we get Jack being like, don't do it. Yeah. Or do. He's really good in a crisis, I have to say. By sort of doing reverse psychology where he's like, well, now you've implicated me in your suicide, so I'm going to have to go after you. Yeah, and he gives her this whole spiel about how he's from Wisconsin and he fell in a frozen lake once and it's like being stabbed with a hundred knives all over your body. So he dissuaded her successfully. He's going to go after her, which is just to establish that he's started to unlace his shoes and he goes to grab her and she's like, all right, I'm not going to kill myself. And then wouldn't you know it? Something happens on the boat and she goes over and he pulls her back up. She slips because she's wearing like heels and like some beaded gown. And, you know, it's a Lexi Featherston type situation. But when he pulls her back over the ship, he ends up on top of her. And then the crew just assumes like she's being raped, I guess. Uh, You know, they clear it up, though. And, and ultimately, Jack gets an invitation to dinner the next day as a thank you for saving Kate Winslet's life. And yes, he very much does not narc on her for her suicide attempt. Which I think Cal wouldn't even do anything. But yes, I love that it starts with a rape accusation and ends with a dinner invite because Cal is going to give him $20 as a tip. And and Kate Winslet's rose is like, oh, is that all I'm worth? Fair enough. So later that night, we get the backstory about the heart of the ocean, which is that it was in like Louis the Sixteenth's crown or something. Blah, blah, blah. It's a made up stone. But I, I love how quite like Mr. Big, it's like, hey, I think you were like, I don't know, either trying to kill yourself or maybe fornicating with this guy. And as a reward, you're going to get a big ass diamond necklace. Yeah, I was saving it for after we got married, but maybe this will keep you from killing yourself. Maybe we won't make it to New York, so I might give. I should probably give you this necklace right now. So the next day, Kate and Jack are just hanging out, strolling around the ship. She seems pretty miserable. It's established that Leo is an orphan. As you do. He has to be. Then Rose, you know, starts going off about how she's engaged and the invitations have been sent out. And I feel like I'm standing in the middle of the room screaming at the top of my lungs and no one hears me. And then he very reasonably asks her, well, do you love Cal? Like, are you in love with him? And she's like, that's so rude. Like, how dare you ask me that? It's like, bitch, I just saw you try and kill yourself. Yeah. Don't front. Rose is kind of a bad vibe, but at least she's self-aware enough to be like, don't look at me like I'm a brat. Like, I know, but I'm not. Yeah. But I kind of am. She is, but we understand why she is the way that she is. No one can be as perfect as Leo also. Well, yeah, he has all of all of the attributes of a fictional character that girls would fall in love with. He's an orphan and he also has an artistic talent, which is for drawing. And sees his drawings of like French one-legged sex workers and stuff. 
I love how it's very reasonable. Rose is like, oh, this was your lover. And his explanation and to prove to her that this woman wasn't his lover. He's like, no, she only has one leg. It's like, what? It's like, that sounds ableist. (laughs) And then they have a phlegm spitting contest, which is interrupted by Kathy Bates and her bitch of a mom and (laughs) Cal. Played by Frances Fisher, we should say. The great Frances Fisher is Rose's mom, Ruth. Yes. And then we get uh, Kathy Bates making over Leonardo DiCaprio because if he's coming to dinner, he needs a tux and... Thank God the unsinkable Molly Brown went to Harrods or something and got a tuxedo. It was her son's, right? Right. Obviously, this tux never made it to New York, but I like to imagine like her delivering the tux to her son. And he's like, hey, mom, why does this tux have pit stains and like smell like Guinness? <laughs> totally. <laughs> it is really considerate of James Cameron to give us this fashion moment for Jack. Nothing else that he wears is really that remarkable, but he looks so fucking hot in this and with the slicked back hair. It's a whole ass look. Do you want Tad to get? She kind of looks like that when she wears a tux and has her hair slicked back, but she did buy like a wingtip tuxedo shirt while watching this, which is the style of shirt that just kind of points down like Billy Zane wears one throughout the entire film. Right. Basically, it's like a full white tie thing also i guess this scene mirrors there was a film in the 50s called titanic and there is a scene in that film where a woman gives the main character a tuxedo and they go shopping in the store that was on the titanic and i guess originally james cameron wrote that scene to i guess be a nod to that film but there was no tuxedo shop on the titanic so they (laughs) switched it up He was like, I have so many historically inaccurate things. This might be a bridge too far, (laughs) even for me. So they go to dinner and everyone is shook by the makeover. And Billy Zane doesn't even recognize him. And uh, yeah, Jack fits in with the 1%. He does a motivational speech about making every moment count or something. Yeah, he's very upfront. He doesn't try to pretend even though Rose is like, just pretend you're rich and you belong here and people won't think any different. Like, I think it's John Astor is like, oh, are you of the Boston uh, Dawson's? And he's like, no, I'm of the Milwaukee Dawson's. And he's like, oh. Chippewa Falls, bitch. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But he doesn't pretend. He's like, look, I won this ticket a day ago. I don't know where tomorrow lies. Well, also he can't pretend because Cal's like, so how's steerage? (laughs) uh billy zane is the perfect little shit in this movie he really is he's he's fantastic truly and then they ditch these people and go to the rager in steerage the irish jig well as soon as dinner is over the men obviously go to the smoking room and like Cal's like, all right, bitch, back to steerage for you. And then he slips Rose a note and she sneaks out with him. And then they do. Yeah. The jig. And like Kate Winslet does some weird ballet. She she goes on point. That always freaks me out. It's very painful. I used to do point ballet or beyond point in ballet. Wow. It's a very painful experience. I bet. So, of course, like Cal's weird henchman follows them. (sighs) Who is that guy? It's a good question. One second. I'll tell you who that guy is. Because he seems like more than a butler. It's uh, David Warner, who's definitely a that guy actor. His name in the film is Spicer Lovejoy, which is a banger of a name. (laughs) Okay, Spicer. I like that. (laughs) Of course, he reports back to Cal. 
So the next day, Cal is pissed. He flips the breakfast table. He tells Kate Winslet that she has to obey him and shit. In this scene, I was like, would I marry Billy Zane for the money, even if this was the vibe? Because she could still have her penny penniless lover in New York and just be married to this rich guy. I mean, we learn at the end of the film, it doesn't, Cal is not able to hold on to his fortune for, right. for much longer, but. I mean, I'm, I'm not about that life. All right, fair enough. I do love the scene afterwards where you see, and Kate Winslet is so great in this scene when the. The corset lay scene. Even before that, when she's trying to clean up the mess and the woman comes to help and she's like, I'm sorry, I don't know what happened. Yeah, and we know that she's a good person because of the way that she treats her maid, I assume. Yeah, I don't know what, attendant for her room? Yeah. Anyway, next scene, she's being corseted in and then her piece of shit mother is like, I'll take over for that. I need to talk to my daughter about a few things. And then she's like, you know, the money is gone. It's like, yeah, bitch, obviously. Why do you think you're forcing me to marry this guy? But also, where did the money go? Clearly the father is not in the picture. So did he lose all their money and then kill himself? Who knows? But because she says all they have left is their name. And she will not go back to being a seamstress or she will not become a seamstress. Yeah, she doesn't want to sell any of her fine things at auction. She's like, Rose, how would you feel if we had to sell all of our shit? I get the sense that Rose does not care. Rose, as evidenced by the final scene of of this movie, Rose is the least materialistic person on the face of the earth, which is a, a nice character attribute, but... Right, but her mother is Laura Dern in Big Little Lies. Like, I will not not be rich, so you get your fucking (laughs) shit in order. I really think that Rose's mother and Cal would be very happy together. They are the perfect couple. (laughs) Truly. But she does have a great line, which I think there are a couple of moments in Titanic that give Frances Fisher's character a bit of soul, and she does say in the scene, of course it's unfair, we're women, our choices are never easy. Right. But I'm too fucking old to marry Cal, so you're going to have to do it. That's not the end of the line, but that's the subtext. They had to remind the audience what time period (laughs) we're actually in. As if it's that different now? Well, it is. Anyway. (laughs) Blessedly. Anyway, Jack tries to make his way up from steerage back to the first class and is like, I was just here last night, but his hair's not slicked back, so no one recognizes him. Yeah, and Spicer? Spicer Lovejoy. <laughs> Spicer Lovejoy <laughs> cockblocks him and basically like bribes him to, to leave and never contact Rose again. But that won't stop him. No, nothing will stop Jack. And... I don't know. Ultimately, Jack does find her, though. Yeah, I can't remember how they find each other. I don't know how that happens. And then he does the whole TED talk that's like, I got 10 bucks in my pocket and nothing to offer you. But if you marry this guy, that flame in you is going to stop burning or whatever. And you're definitely going to kill yourself. And anyway, you want to fuck in the back of an old timey car? (laughs) Come with me. They somehow end up back in Rose's room where... Jack has brought his portfolio once again, because this is where we get the draw me like one of your French girls scene. And they're checking out her art collection, which is like also pretty cringe because it's like, look at this Monet and his use of color. All right. It's very like PBS morning children's show version of art history, but better than nothing. Well, to be fair, PBS actually had really, really great art programming, but... (laughs) Whatever. Anyway, this is where Kate Winslet gets naked. This is when all the boys in the audience stood up and were like, boobies. Yeah, 
She looks really fab. Also, whatever that robe she comes in in is very good. And uh, she strips down. We see those excellent tits, you know, against the can- flickering candlelight or whatever. So in the insert shot of the drawing, those are not Leonardo DiCaprio's hands, but James Cameron, who I guess was sketching. Hmm. I don't think he did the literal sketch, but... Yeah, who actually did the sketch? I would love to know. It's beautiful. It's perfect. But there is so much sexual tension in this scene. It actually is very effective. Oh, wait, I take that back. It is actually James Cameron who drew the sketch himself. Wait, what? Instead of DiCaprio sketching the scandalous nude portrait of Winslet, it was actually James Cameron who drew the sketch himself because he wanted to get it absolutely right. The drawing was reportedly sold for over 16000 but neither the concluding price nor the identity of the person who bought it was revealed. Oh, that it's that's worth so much more than $16,000. Let's be honest, James Cameron bought that for himself. Wow, I'm impressed. Color me impressed. He's very talented. He is very talented. Also, I really applaud James Cameron and his wife's efforts to get people to eat one plant-based meal a day. Speaking of which, this episode is brought to you by Green Chef. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's actually not. But, you know, guys, sometimes very rarely we do turn down sponsorship opportunities. And I think one of the times we did that was remember the meat box? Oh, yeah. Butcher (laughs) box, I think it's called. Yeah, we just. It's like a box. It's just a box of miscellaneous frozen meat that you get like. A monthly subscription. You guys are listening on Patreon, so you guys don't get ads anymore. But like, we will literally say yes to anything. And that was like one of the things we were like, no one's going to care about this. Well, we actually can't. Like, we don't know. Is this meat organic? Is it local? Is it ethically farmed? Who knows? And we're on the side of James Cameron and Susie Amos, which his current wife, the one you speak of, who is vegan, he met on the set of this film. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Was she an actor? (laughs) She's old Rose's granddaughter in the film. Oh, shit. (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. He was, so after Terminator 2, he got with Linda Hamilton and they dated for a long time, had a kid. Linda Hamilton was with him all throughout the very troubled production of Titanic. They famously got married right before Titanic came out without a prenup and got divorced like 18 months later. So she got all of that Titanic profit. Wow. And they divorced and he married Susie Amos and they've been married ever since. Yeah. They seem chill. Oh, he is not a chill man. That is his fourth wife. (laughs) Whatever. You live, you learn. Anyway, I think the inference of this scene is that Jack and Rose would fuck if they weren't yet again cock-blocked by Spicer Lovejoy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm never not going to say the name now that I know what his name is. So they flee the room and go down into the part of the ship where, I don't know, it's just like a bunch of sweaty guys throwing coal into massive furnaces. It's the boiler room. How do you think the ship is powered, Jell? It's a beautiful sequence. Like the shot itself is gorgeous. Her dress is gauzy and perfect. They're running through. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like the music video for um, Hey Jupiter by Tori Amos, which is a similar like I'm running through a burning house in slow motion kind of energy. I thought you were going to say David Fincher's Madonna video for Express Yourself, which is inspired by Metropolis. Right. Yes. We haven't gotten to the Metropolis part of this movie because there's there's the coal guys and then there's the guys that are just in the room with all of the moving parts. The engine room, correct. (laughs) 
But anyway, Jack's like, hey, baby, you ever been fucked in the back of a Model T? You're about to. Is pretty hot. Like, you don't see anything, but they did the job of conveying that they had good sex quite well. Just all you needed was that hand. The hand and the sweatiness level of both of them afterwards really says, says it all. Which I think was fundamental for millennials who are watching this film before they have had sex. And you're just like, oh, that's what it is. <laughs> so true. <laughs> but it seems like they had really good sex. I feel like the first time you have sex yeah. is like not that good. I was going to say like, because you know, the first time you have sex and it's earth shattering and incredible. <laughs> <laughs> you're just like covered in sweat. Looking into Leonardo DiCaprio's eyes. <sighs> I wish. Billy Zane finds the drawing and the necklace, which has a note from Rose that says, you can keep both of us locked in your safe. Ooh, sick burn. I know. Snap. She has a couple of really good one-liners in this movie, I will say, and that's one of them. Yeah. I think the people that I feel the worst for in this movie are the two people that work on the Titanic that Spicer Lovejoy has searched for Jack and Rose, and that's what gets them out of the car and gives them a prime view to see the Titanic get hit by an iceberg. Right, but was it their fault? Because, as you'll remember, the lookouts are just staring into the black abyss. They don't have binoculars, which is historically accurate, which seems crazy because it's night. Like, how do you expect to see anything? Okay, so I have the backstory of what actually happened on the Titanic and why those lookouts did not have binoculars. Okay, lay it on me. So David Blair was the second officer of the Titanic, and he was reassigned at the last minute to be on the sister ship of the Titanic, the Olympic. And in his haste, he left taking the key with him for the crow's nest locker. The crow's nest is what they call the the kind of lookout cubby for the guys. And so that is believed to be the reason why there were no binoculars available. Oh, God. Can you imagine? Isn't that terrifying? That's terrifying. What if he had remembered the key and the boat didn't crash? That's some sliding doors shit that I don't even want to think about. Well, there's a lot of moments like that. Like the chief communication person, how they made their money was by sending messages via Morse code for the passengers. And so the other ship that was actually way closer than any other ship, the California, was like, by the way, we stopped for the night because there's ice everywhere. And the communications guy on the Titanic basically was like, shut the fuck up. I'm trying to make money sending communications. Like, stop telling me about this ice. And so the California shut their communication off because they literally were 20 minutes away from the Titanic and could have come over and saved everyone. That's so fucked up. So in addition to them not having binoculars, they're distracted by the fact that Jack and Rose have now stumbled out onto the deck and they're like laughing and kissing. And I think this is where Rose says, I'm getting off the ship with you. Yeah. Or something to that effect. And they're so distracted by watching these hot 20-somethings make out that they don't notice the iceberg. So it's like, is this Jack and Rose's fault? By the way, they're not 20-something. Aren't they? <laughs> Kate Winslet's 17. Her character is supposed to be 17 in this film. Okay, but she was like 20 yeah. or something when she filmed. The okay. actors. Got it, the got actors it. were 20. Everything was above board with the actors, but... So they wanted to put her with Matthew McConaughey? How old was he at the time? Matthew McConaughey is born in 69, so he was he would have been 28 when the film came out. So 26 when they would have started shooting. Okay, I guess that's not that unseemly. And Kate Winslet is six years younger than him. Also, I am so annoyed by this whole discourse about Billie Eilish's boyfriend grooming her. Have you heard about this? Of course I have. 
I have particular thoughts on this because when I was 20, I was dating a 31-year-old who at the time I felt I was more mature than, and now as a 34-year-old, I could, I still contend I was more mature than that man. <laughs> right. I just don't think when someone's 21, it's fucked up to date a 30-year-old or a 30, wait, 32-year-old? She's 20 and he's 31. Okay. That's like a normal age difference. And also, I think what's not being taken into consideration is that she has been in the entertainment industry since she was 15, and she does have a maturity level, I think, a little bit more than a typical 20-year-old. Oh, for sure. I can't even imagine her dating another 20-year-old. Like, who would she date? However, will she come to regret showing up to the LACMA Gucci benefit, wearing a blanket with, like... (laughs) Her and him under it? Yeah, no. Will, <laughs> Possibly. Will the next record be fire when they break up? Also, yes. Guys, it's a no-lose situation for us. Uh, it's weird because on some level, I feel like everyone wants her to feel like she's victimized or something. Like they'd want an album about her being like, I was groomed instead of just like... Yeah, but I- it's Gen Z. If there's an age difference more than 18 months, the person's being groomed. <laughs> It's true. But also, clearly, I have some personal (laughs) feelings about this because of my own 11-year-old age difference. My own 11-year age difference. Yeah, maybe don't say 11-year-old. My own 11-year-old wife. By the way, I'm not cutting this out. This is being kept in this episode. Um, I think the other issue that people have is he knew her when she was 16. Okay, that does give like Celine Dion Renee vibes, but not to the same degree because he knew Celine when she was like 11 or something. I also think about that with Legends of the Fall with the Brad Pitt character and who becomes his wife is like the daughter of the guy who takes care of the ranch. And it's like, oh, he knew her when she was nine. Okay, but also, like, what was the situation? Because it's like, I knew Tat when she was 18, but it was took years before we actually dated. Yeah, I don't. I didn't know if we were going to mention that. <laughs> that. I don't think that's that fucked up. Should we also say she was your intern and that's how you met? <laughs> Nothing inappropriate happened, as you know, because our first kiss was in front of you many years later, this is which true. is a story for another time. But also, wait, wait, one more thing. (laughs) I resent the LACMA gala because that happened on the day that I went to the Academy Museum. And you know, we rely on that parking garage, which was closed for a private event. Which was that event. Which was that event. So I had to park in the Automotive Museum. Gross. You had to cross Wilshire Boulevard? (laughs) I know. Anyway. Should this be things we were discussing on this week's pop culture episode? Yes. But guess what, guys? You got that discourse now. (laughs) All right. Back to the film. So the iceberg hits. Wait, wait, wait. Before the iceberg hits, the guy's like, iceberg right ahead. (laughs) Which is to me like the standout dialogue from this entire movie. That and I'll never let go, Jack. Spoiler alert. (laughs) So Spoiler alert. She she does let go. (laughs) A mere moments later, but... (laughs) There's a time lapse, but yeah. So it's been revealed in the decades after the sinking of the Titanic that if they had actually hit the iceberg head on, the ship wouldn't have sank. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, also, for how dramatic this movie is in so many ways, the crash itself is not dramatic at all. Don't you think? Like, it looks like the iceberg just grazes the side. Well, I think... As an audience, we're supposed to think, surely it wasn't that big of a deal, or... 
I think that that is the tension between making something dramatic for the audience and then also reflecting that most of the crew did think they only grazed the iceberg when it initially hit. Right. And everyone on board was like, obviously, completely naive to how severe this was at the time. And it is truly terrifying that from when it hit, it only took two and a half hours for this boat to sink, which is just so fucking scary. Well, this is when the film begins to dip into like a thriller and a horror film because I still find one of the most terrifying sequences when they make the decision to shut the the boiler room down and those oh. steel doors come down and they're try- the the guys working in the boiler room are trying to escape swimming under the doors. Oh, the below deck shit is way more dramatic than the crash itself. Well, also because as an audience member, you know that they are, sorry to phrase it this way, disposable. So even watching it now, and I've seen this movie, I don't know, a dozen times, I still think that one of the guys is like going to get their legs chopped off. I know. (laughs) At least they spared us that. But wait, is this part of the Titanic experience? (laughs) You have to dive under the steel doors as they're closing. You have to like swim Do you think during the escape room craze of 2018, 2019, someone pitched a Titanic escape room? Not mad at that. I know, I'd I'd do it. And I hate the concept of escape rooms. Now we get- Oh my God, us being in an escape room, how long until we just got in a full-blown like physical fight? You and I? (laughs) Yeah, I feel like we would not thrive in an escape room. I mean, trying to get out together, I think- you, Tad, and I trying to escape an escape room. I'm that's where I don't get very competitive, and I just would like one. I hate fucking riddles to begin with. So, but I think, I hate a riddle too. Fuck a riddle. I think I I honestly I don't think you and I would fight. I think we would attempt to solve it. Be like fuck this, and just sit in the chair and like ride the time out and wait for the doors to open again. Yeah, either Tat would figure out a way to get out, or she'd get super frustrated and be like fuck this, and like Tat would like break the door down, <laughs> and we'd be stuck with thousands of dollars in property damage. Yeah, unless the way to get out of the escape room is through pop culture trivia, like we're not getting out. <laughs> See, we would actually... If it's about common sense and, like, that kind of shit, we're we're dead. I'm sorry. See, this is where if we were in the film Scream, we would survive. If our fate is in the hands of knowing the correct horror film trivia, we're fine. If it's some sort of... Oh, so true, yeah. If it's it's based on some sort of SAT-esque reasoning question, we're fucked. Yeah. This is where the film takes a turn that I always forget, which is that Cal frames Jack for a crime he did not commit. Right. Which is stealing the diamond necklace. Yeah. And then he gets thrown into Titanic jail, basically, while screaming, Rose, Rose, you know I didn't do it. You know I didn't do it, Rose. Heartbreaking, because we do know that he didn't do it. Well, Well, I I guess we don't, but like I never doubted Jack for a second. Rose knows that he didn't do it because they were fucking in a car while he would have stolen this necklace. But, like, she doesn't know it because they've only known each other for 36 hours. Well, she thinks he took it from the safe when they were in the room. No, not not our Jack. Well, obviously not our Jack, but... Anyway, so he goes off to jail. The one thing the Titanic actually didn't build was a jail. So so Spicer Lovejoy just... (laughs) 
<laughs> takes him down below deck and handcuffs him to a pole. Yeah. And then Rose cross paths with Victor Garber. Because they're, they're who starting... Who refuse to learn his character's name. No, not, not going to learn that. Because at this point, they've all felt some sort of crash, but it doesn't seem that serious. They're giving everyone life jackets. Everyone's kind of standing around waiting to get on the boats, but that hasn't really happened yet. Well, no, they... The the upper class people think that it's such a non-threat that Rose's mother, Ruth, is like, have the heater going when we come back to this room in a couple of minutes. Right. But Rose runs into Victor Garber and he's like, oh, yeah, the ship's just sinking. Everyone's going to die. <laughs> wait, no, that's my, that's my favorite thing. He goes, remember what I told you about the lifeboats? And it's like, wait, no, didn't she tell you about the lifeboats? <laughs> Yeah, she schooled you about the lifeboats, actually. I love all of Victor Garber's scenes around this because, you know, he's like, oh shit, five of the however many compartments have flooded. And someone's like, this boat can't sink. And he's like, it's made of iron. I assure you she can. It's a mathematical certainty. Because the Titanic could take on four of the hulls taking on water, but not a fifth. Not that fifth one. So Rose is led onto a boat. As she should. Right. She gets in a fight with Cal. Because she's like, don't you get it? Half the people on this ship are going to die. And he's like, not the better half. And that's really the final straw. She's like, fuck you, Cal. Fuck you, mom. I'd rather be his whore than your wife. And Which she- is her other really big zinger. And then she spits in his face, which they had to do that scene so many times that Kate Winslet could no longer produce saliva. So she had to put lube in her mouth and spit that out. (laughs) Amazing. So Billy Zane for 50 takes just had to get like lube faced. Love it. So I will say that Rose's mom is a bitch, but as the boat is being lowered and Rose hops off, Frances Fisher has this great moment of acting that like panicked true mother worry. Rose! Feels very real and gives me goosebumps. Yeah, for sure. This is right after she asked if the lifeboats would be seated according to class. So fuck that bitch. And also, to be fair, she doesn't go after her daughter. She's just sort of like, if I yell enough, maybe she'll hop back on this lifeboat. Yeah. And she's going down with Molly's in her boat, right? Yeah, I of think course. so. But see, that's one thing about Molly Brown that isn't really represented in this film, which is her whole thing was that she helped passengers get on the lifeboats she had to be dragged off of the boat, basically. That's not really represented in this movie. Although we do get her fake altruistic act of giving Leo a makeover in his time of need. (laughs) Right. And really, you know, Kathy Bates had already won an Oscar, so she got her moment in this movie. Yeah. Um, So then Rose goes to find Jack. Right, and she bumps into Victor Garber <laughs> yet again, and she's like, he's like, get on a boat. And she's like, look, I'm going to do this. You either help me or you damn me. And he's like, well, I already damned this ship, so I might as well help you. And then he's like, okay, go to the end of that hall. There's going to be an elevator. Take it down to the floor. You're going to see a long passageway. Go right, then go left. I was watching that. I was like, oh, Tat, like if you were trapped down there, like you'd be dead. Yeah. Like I'm not even finding the room let alone rescuing you from it. Whenever I rewatch Titanic, I often like to play the game of like, who would I be on this ship? And I'm that lift operator who abandons Rose. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm brave enough to bring her back down into the flooding Titanic, but not brave enough to wait there to take her back up. 
I think I'm, you know who I want to be? Who I really, really want to be? Unsinkable Molly Brown? No, is the guy that I believe was portraying a real person. I think a Guggenheim or the Guggenheim that drowned. The guy that's basically like, the ship is fucking sinking. I've put on my best outfit. I just want to drink whiskey and go down like a champ. And the character that plays his son, who stands behind him, is the actor Hamish Linkletter. Oh, I didn't notice that. In a very early role. This is when the movie legit turns into a horror film. Well, this hallway sequence is incredible. It's so suspenseful. And it's so cold. It just makes me so chilly watching it. Well, they realize that... Because initially, right, it's like, oh, just have them floating in warm water. It doesn't need to be cool. But then it changed their skin tone. So they did have to put them in cold water. And so behind the scenes, they had hot tubs and like warm water hoses so that people could warm up in between shots. Wow. So, yeah, Kate Winslet frees him from his manacles. That's, I mean, that's the other way I would kill Tad if I was in this (laughs) scenario. There's no way (laughs) I'm hitting the right mark there. I mean, neither does Rose, but of course, Jack being who Jack is, he's like, fuck it, you'll probably land it correctly when you try to do it. Yeah. So they escape through the chilly, chilly hallways and somehow come out through steerage. Well, yeah. Where do you think Titanic jail is? It's in the lower parts of the of the ship. But yeah, they try several they make several attempts to get back up. And then it appears that the crew members of the boat are like locking the third class people downstairs, which I was blessedly surprised to learn did not actually happen. Oh. There's no record of ship employees forcibly trying to keep people down there. Although there were gates in place, but they were more for the purpose of like, there were a lot of immigrants in the third class part of the boat. So it's like they had to be dropped off at Ellis Island and like processed separately. So it was about keeping them there for that purpose, not to just like, you know, separate the classes or whatever. Well, also for reasons unknown, the ship's captain canceled the drill to practice like what would happen if we needed to all get on the lifeboats. That's fucked. Another reason why probably people in steerage didn't know where the fuck to go, even if they weren't being locked out. Yeah, but at this point in the film, the the boat has descended into chaos, essentially. Some people are getting out on the lifeboats, but they're not really filling up the lifeboats all the way. It seems like they can barely even get the lifeboats down into the water. Panic is descending. That one employee shoots himself in the head, which... Not no, like good call. (laughs) Well, there is a sequence of events that happens. One, Cal bribes him. This is the whole sequence where Cal goes back into the safe, gets the necklace, because let us forget this film is really about where the goddamn necklace is. So Cal goes, puts the necklace, and puts money into his coat to bribe that guy. Then he goes and finds Rose, puts his jacket on her, keeps warm, gets her on one of the boats. She yet again is like, fuck this lifeboat. (laughs) Because Cal tells a lie, which Leonardo DiCaprio knows it's a lie, which is, don't worry, there's a boat on another side letting men in. Just like, babe, get on this boat. And Leonardo DiCaprio's like, there's no boat for us. (laughs) And Billy Zane's like, there is for me, not you. And then she jumps off yet again. This is when Billy Zane goes crazy and chases after them and starts shooting at them. Right. I always forget about that. 
But this is when... I hope that's part of the Titanic experience. <laughs> and this is when Billy Zane and uh, his attentive bag man, Spicer Lovejoy, <laughs> he's got that great line where he starts laughing and Spicer Lovejoy's like, what is there to laugh about? And he's like, the diamond's in the coat. And Spicer Lovejoy goes, okay. And he's like, I put the coat on her. <laughs> Because they descend back down in the steerage. And this is where the other terrifying water sequence happens with the child. Leonardo DiCaprio grabs the child. And then the father, who speaks a different language and can't understand them, grabs the child back, goes the wrong way, gets gets clobbered by the water. This is also another very nerve-wracking scene, right, where they find an attendant who's beyond the gates that are locked. He tries to unlock them gets nervous, drops the key, which descends into the water, and then Jack and Jack and Rose have to swim down to get the key to unlock it. Terrifying, very suspenseful. And now they're back up yet again (laughs) in the top of the ship. And yes, this is when it's absolute pandemonium, and the guy who's helping people onto the boats misunderstands the situation. The Irish immigrant that were introduced to his friends with the Jack character gets pushed by someone. That guy thinks that he's charging at him and he shoots him in the stomach. And that is why that guy shoots himself in the head. He can't deal with the guilt. Right. It's too much. Also, you're dying anyway. Yeah. Like, that's the way to go down. I mean, I guess maybe he shouldn't have shot himself because his job was to, like, help rescue people. And perhaps that would have been a better way to go out. But... No judgment. Hadn't, hadn't he done enough at this point? This is the part of the movie where things get sad. Like we see Victor Garber's death, basically, or he's just standing in the room. The captain dies. The band is playing. The string quartet is playing, which actually did happen, which is so cool. Although reportedly they were playing like ragtime music, which does not seem appropriate. And I understand why James Cameron changed it, but... One of the few historical inaccuracies that actually made the film better, in your opinion. Definitely. We get maybe the saddest, one of the saddest parts in the movie, which is the elderly couple lying in bed together. Who are the people that started the Macy's department store. Who are the great, great grandparents of our fave King Princess. There you go. Can you imagine? Wild. Sitting in theaters and being like, there's great, great, great grandma and grandpa. Well, apparently what happened is that they were both offered a spot on the lifeboat. But then the guy was like, I'm not getting on this boat if there are still women and children on this boat. And then the wife was like, I'm not leaving without my husband. So they just decided to die together. And uh, yeah, they were last seen just chilling on a couple of lounge chairs watching the insanity. That might be me. If I'm not the if I'm not the elevator porter who's like, sorry, lady, I got to leave you here. I might just be the person chilling on the lounge chairs being like, eh, fuck it. That's the way to be. This is also somewhere in this sequence is when Billy Zane finally escapes on the boat. Right. Because he grabs some child and is like, this is my child. So fucked up. It is fucked up. Have you seen that meme? Because the whole thing is women and children only, right? Have you seen that meme? where it's like Billy Zane in Titanic, but he's just like, I'm trans. No, it's women and children (laughs) only. And then it has Billy Zane going, I'm trans. Yeah. Genius. Sorry, guys. We find that funny. It's legit. The boat sinks in earnest. The band finally stops playing because they're like, guys, I do love the moment when another thing like Jack and Rose who keep descending up and down the ship 
there are several points where the band stops playing and starts playing again. I think the first of which is like, eh, no one listens to us at dinner, so might as well keep playing. <laughs> it's good to have a sense of purpose in your final moments. That's true. But now the boat is actually sinking. As they're making their way to the top of the ship, I love the the preacher who's like speaking to people and Leonardo DiCaprio goes, you want to walk a little faster through that valley? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Jack is very much, is the hero in many ways. He very much saves Kate Blanchett's, Winslet's Winslet. life. I still I still can't figure it out. Because, yeah, he, he gets them to the, the nose of the ship. Kate Winslet's like, Jack, this is where we first met. He makes sure that they, like, flip around at the correct time so they don't end up falling to their death like everyone else. Yeah, he seems to understand a lot about what's going to happen when a gigantic ship sinks. Yeah, and then they ultimately go into the water, which is terrifying to watch every single time. It's funny rewatching this film in the era of all of these superhero spectacles that kind of make you feel nothing because they're all CGI-based and no one's really in the actual locations. And so it's fun to watch Titanic that is pretty practical. Like, even the CGI, they were so meticulous in... Even if shots were CGI, right, they would film miniatures and then um, composite them together. So it felt real. But yeah, watching that scene, every time the ship finally sinks and they're plunged into the water, it's so visceral. And that moment when the lights finally go out. Yeah. I only noticed this in this viewing, but there's there's a second right before where it seems like the guys working in the boiler room or the engine room slap off the the lights, I think, so everyone doesn't get electrocuted. I'm not sure what that is. I don't remember that. I thought the lights just went out because the ship was, like, sinking or whatever. But that is terrifying. And the fact that all of the people in the lifeboats just sat and watched that is fucking crazy and heard everyone screaming. And as we know, only two of the lifeboats actually went back. And so few people were rescued or something like seven people or something were, were actually saved from the waters. I thought this was a fun piece of trivia that when the film got re-released in 2012, James Cameron didn't update any of the facts or fix any of the errors except one, which was the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, when he saw the film, was like, the sky is historically inaccurate. There weren't that many stars in the sky. <laughs> And he wrote a letter to James Cameron explaining the error. Several years later, upon meeting Cameron in person, Tyson repeated his complaint. And then at an event that occurred at the Hayden Planetarium, he brought it up a third time. So when they were doing post-production on the re-release in 2012, a post-production technician called Tyson and asked him to provide a picture of what the sky really would have looked like. (laughs) That's really funny. So this is where we get Molly's iconic moment. Those are your men out there. You do a great, again, a great, <laughs> it's a not, good. It's not good. I don't understand any one of you. Those are your men out there. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, apparently, she was even more major, though, because she actually, like, threatened to throw the crew member overboard if they didn't go back to save people, which I don't think they actually did. But she tried. No, and it sucks that they didn't give her that line and oddly gave the crewman her line, which is he threatens to throw her over the boat if she keeps talking. Yeah. All right, is it now time to discuss whether could they have both fit on that piece of wood or not? The debate that has plagued pop culture for 25 years. 
Well, they did recreate it on an episode of Mythbusters. <laughs> and yes, they could have both fit on the door. I think the problem here is that the door just needed to be smaller to make this a more realistic plot point, you know? Because obviously it wasn't their intent. To create this debate for the last 25 years and have people pester James Cameron and be like, clearly, they both could have fit on there. Well, I'm sure he regrets it more than anyone. (laughs) But you know what? Brave of him for not fixing it in post for the re-release. True. And yeah, this is when we get Jack and Rose's final scene. It's pretty fucking sad. He says something about you're not going to die here. You're going to be an old woman warm in your bed or something. And she's like, I'll never let go, Jack. I'll never let go. And yet, she lets go. Well, she lets go because Jack dies. One boat does come back, and she has to let go so that she can go and get, like, a whistle from that guy so that the boats can find her because her vocal cords are frozen. Apparently, people that did get rescued by the boats, some people just died in the boats, and other people died weeks, days later from just various shock, various health issues um, from being in the ocean that long. There was one guy who survived that went down with the ship. A version of him can be seen drinking whiskey before the ship goes down. And according to James Cameron, there's an account of him. Basically, he was so drunk and obliterated that he didn't realize what he was doing, but he was riding the top of the ship straight down and survived. And they think it's because of the alcohol in his system, even though scientifically that wouldn't help you, but he did survive. Incredible. What a legend. I know, that really should have been Jack, but... (laughs) And Bill Paxton is left to believe that the not Hope Diamond, Hope Diamond was just lost to the sands of time? Well, to be fair, even if she was wearing Cal's jacket, you are telling me that that necklace stayed in the pocket through the scene where the ship is going down, through her swimming in the water, getting to the guy with the whistle... That's crazy. But guess what? It happened. It happened in the world of this film. Yes, it did. I thought it was interesting that Cal goes looking for Rose when they get rescued. And she just pulls a blanket super tight against her face to... Well, yeah, she's starting a new life. She's Rose Dawson. I love a time where you didn't have to go to the DMV or change government papers. You could just tell (laughs) someone, actually, this is my name now. Also, so she just never sees her mother again? Her mother who thinks she died on the Titanic. Whatever. Clearly it was easier that way. Did her mother not see her in a 1920s Hollywood magazine when she became (laughs) an actress? (laughs) James Cameron, I have questions. Evidently, James Cameron wrote biographies for all the extras. So he definitely has a detailed biography on uh, Jack, on Rose, DeWitt, Dawson. Does she have a third name? I have no idea. Oh, another thing that I think is really funny is that there was obviously no Jack Dawson on the Titanic, but there was some crew member whose name was Jay Dawson. I think his name was actually James or something, but just listed on the manifest as as Jay Dawson. And because of this movie, people went to his grave and like covered it with photos of Leonardo DiCaprio and like ticket stubs from Titanic and flowers and shit thinking that he was the real Jack when, as we know, no such person exists. But isn't that wild? 
Wow. If anyone was one of those people that in 1997 visited the grave of Jay Dawson, please call into the hotline. Oh, I thought you were going to be like, that would be me. <laughs> I don't know where he's buried. So Ireland, I assume. Bill Paxton and his crew is basically like, well, there goes that gold digging voyage. Case closed. Old Rose says something about a woman's heart being a deep ocean of secrets or something. Which it seems like she told all of the secrets in the preceding two hours of this story. Yeah. And then after this story, she goes out to the ship. And wouldn't you know it, she's had the necklace the entire time. And she quite famously drops it into the ocean. Which, talk about privilege. Also, don't you think that if Bill Paxton did another deep dive run, he would have found the necklace? I mean, that's like a needle in a haystack. Literally. But if the heart of the ocean is comparable to the Hope Diamond, it is worth $300 million. Can you imagine how many wonderful nonprofits could benefit from a check like that? Yeah. Uh, Mackenzie Bezos, she is not. Well, also, it's not like Jack gave her the fucking necklace. Cal gave her the necklace. Cal, who there would be no paper trail because he killed himself during the Great Depression because he lost all of his money. Right. So good call Rose for not marrying him. Yeah, and maybe actually the dropping of the necklace was her final fuck you to Cal. Because why would she associate Jack with this? I don't... I guess he drew her in it, but... Yeah, I guess that's that's a physical object that's kind of related to him that in a way she could still be with him. What's more puzzling is what you're meant to understand is this is a story that Rose never told anyone in her family ever. Yeah. And presumably a story that was going to die with her if this event had not happened. Yeah, Jack deserves more than that. What a coincidence. If she hadn't happened to be doing ceramics and her granddaughter had a local news broadcast playing in the background. No one would ever know that Jack existed. Which is kind of rude, Rose. It is. I mean, also recklessly abandoning jewelry that fabulous is is rude in a in a completely different sense but she goes to sleep and has the best death ever i was gonna say is she going to sleep or is she dying she's dying well she's going to sleep and just happens to be dying in her sleep where she is reunited with every single person not the people that she's known in her life but every single person that was on the titanic they're all attending her wedding and who would be at the top of the stairs but jack jack in the tux slicked back hair this is the point in the movie where everyone starts crying again because everyone cries during the i'll never let go jack scene and then you cry again at the wedding and then when celine dion's song comes in at the credits is just when you completely sob so here's the craziest thing james cameron was adamant in not having any song included in the film and so the composer had to convince him to have the celine dion song and then celine dion initially did not want to do the song because she had done because you love me for up close and personal which was an incredible song why would she not like that i think because she's like i did it how could i possibly top this the title track to the up close and personal soundtrack well it wasn't the title track because it was called because you loved me uh that was an amazing song much better than the film but this was perfect because the song and the movie were on the same level you know they just made each other better we don't live in a monoculture anymore so it's hard to explain 
just like the chokehold this had on culture for like two straight years. Yeah, this song, obviously I loved it. I still love it. But the extent that it was overplayed was insane. And at some point they had to to introduce a club remix, basically. Do you remember that? The remix? The remix was on radio for years also. They just put a little beat behind it. If I may end on this bizarre Titanic-related fact, which is Bill Paxton and James Cameron were doing a documentary called Ghosts of the Abyss, and they went on a, a deep-dive submarine to the bottom of the ocean to go see the Titanic on the morning of September 11th, 2001. And when they came up, everyone that was on landside went, we're under attack. Could you imagine going to go see the Titanic? Wait, so he went back to the Titanic? Yeah, he did. How many times has he gone to the Titanic at this point? Twelve. So crazy. Well, you know what? I continue to love this movie. Every time I watch this movie, I love it. It is the highest grossing film of all time. It was briefly beat by Avengers Endgame and then Paramount decided to re-release Titanic in theaters and then it and then it officially overtook Avengers Endgame to yet again become the highest grossing film of all time. And by the way, I hope they fucking re-release this in theaters. Yeah, they should. They probably will. They have to. Why would they not? And now I bet, unlike the re-release a decade ago, I'm sure we're going to get some Titanic conspiracy theorists who are like, where's the boat then? I haven't seen the boat, so I don't think the Titanic actually happened. Well, anyone can see the boat. It's just really expensive, right? Yeah, I did go down a rabbit hole about Titanic tourism. And the documentary I watched, I don't know how long ago it was, but like for 60 grand, you can go on a Russian boat and go see the Titanic. Yeah, that's pretty cost prohibitive. It is, but uh, as you might imagine, not that I would have thought about this before this morning, but there's a whole culture of people that buy artifacts from the Titanic. Right. Which are taken from the ship. That's creepy. Wouldn't be my choice, but to each their own. So we have another little Patreon episode coming out this month that we're very excited about. Um, Our first book club right oh no we did the Anna Wintour one our second book but first sex in the city alum related book yes we will be discussing Kim Cattrall's satisfaction the art of the female orgasm any of you want to pick one up on Amazon you can or let's be honest eBay well an Amazon seller I don't know if it's still in print but anyway it's it's definitely not in print still Chelsea (laughs) Um, so yeah, looking forward to getting into that. Maybe we'll learn some things. Look, I'm, that's always what I'm searching for is satisfaction. So I want to hear what Kim Cattrall has to say. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. And, uh, we'll be back soon. Shall we go out with the most dramatic part of my heart will go on? Oh, we have to. All right. Bye guys. Bye guys.